Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me, devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 and AM 930. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, but a photographer of over 30 years. If a picture tells a thousand words, then yes, I guess you can say I preach to the glory of our Creator by capturing, illustrating, and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the gospel through my imagery, the spoken word, and the written word. This radio program fulfills the spoken part, and the imagery utilized for this devotion are of a singular cross on a lonely hill shot over a two-year period. The written word for this program is from a book that I published containing images of that cross collection. It matches 30 cross images with 30 original essays from a wide spectrum of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. The book shares the same name as this program, What the Cross Means to Me, by Harvest House Publishing. Each week, we read one of the essays and ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the Word of God. This week's essay is More Than a Story by Jerry Jenkins. Jerry Jenkins is an author and scriptwriter. He was the producer and driving force behind the Left Behind series, a book and movie series about the rapture and end times. And so with that, allow me to read his essay, More Than a Story, by Jerry Jenkins. As a lifelong lover of words and a treasurer of stories, I have always been drawn to the cross of Christ, the rough, ugly vehicle of death, for the lover of my soul has become an object of beauty in the hands of lyricists through the centuries. I can never, without a lump in my throat, hear, sing, recite, or even run silently through my mind phrases the story of the cross have inspired. In the cross of Christ I glory, standing o'er the wrecks of time. I will weep no more for the pain that he bore. I will glory in the cross. Love crucified arose. Was it for crimes that I have done? He died upon the tree. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? As mere literature, the story of a sinless sacrifice dying for me would be classic. The unspeakable knowledge that this is more than a story, that it is true, demands my very life. So ends the essay More Than a Story as written and submitted by Jerry Jenkins for the book, What the Cross Means to Me. There is a poem accompanying this essay by Alexander McLaren, which says, The cross is the center of the world's history, the incarnation of Christ and the crucifixion of our Lord are the pivot round which all the events of the ages revolve. There's also an image 
accompanying this essay, an image entitled The Departure. It is an image after sunset. There's just enough light in the sky to be able to place items in the photo in a silhouette. The cross is only, I would say, 20% of the image on the lower left-hand side. And the rest of the image is mostly all sky. There is a 10% landscape at the bottom. But again, the rest of the image is all, all sky, except there is an airplane that looks like it had recently passed over the cross and is departing away from the cross. Hence, the name of the image, which is the departure. Now, the story of the life of Jesus is detailed in the Bible, but only to a point. We are told in John 21:25 that Jesus did many things. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. But from what we see in the Bible, we have three stories within his story. These are the events leading up to and surrounding the miraculous birth of Christ, an event that was such a paradigm shift that all of time was restarted. For those of you listening who are not aware, when we say it is 2021 this year, we are saying it is approximately 2020 years since the birth of Christ. Also, when any of the 7 billion people on earth refer to this date, they are knowingly or unknowingly speaking to the birth of Jesus, the new Adam. And when one looks at the bigger picture, we see how the holiday of Christmas is becoming a global holiday. And when you take into account the religious art, songs, literature, movies, TV shows, and countless school Christmas performances, I guess uh, many public school, call, call, they call it a holiday pageant now. And of course, the same is said for all of the peripheral stories that were born out of the Christmas celebration. Um, remembrances of a saint named Nicholas or a folklore of a Santa Claus. Of course, you have uh, Rudolph and the Reindeers, Frosty the Snowman, Jack Frost, most recently Chippy the Elf, songs about old Christmas trees. It goes on and on. Last fall, I saw that Netflix launched a movie about the daughter of St. Nick who took over as Santa. The interpretations evolve every year. So when we try to look over the amount of disparate things created and the amount of money made, all originating from the story of the birth of Christ, and if we return to the source story, the thing that amazes me is how is the story is such a simplistic but persuasive witnessing tool. If a picture tells a thousand words, then a Christmas painting or a nativity set preaches to the good news of God becoming man. And I personally remember the awe-inspiring moment when I walked into my first creche exhibit. It seems that while Mormons don't really focus on the cross at all, they really do enjoy celebrating the, the story of the birth of Christ. What I discovered is that all around the country, each congregation, or most all of them, 
hold a crash exhibit, normally the first week of December. It includes choral performances and other types of peripheral performances. Um, they give away hot chocolate. It's, it's a very festive event to go visit. And the one that I first went to, there were hundreds of nativities owned by various families who borrowed it to that congregation and for that event. That first one that I intended was big enough to group them by regions of the world. There was Latin American-based area, an Asian section, and an African grouping. There was a European section, a Russian section, a North American uh, slash Canadian section, U.S.-Canadian. Uh, just, just simply amazing. Such a night of epiphanies. How many ways could the same story be told so differently, non-verbally, and just plain simply? The characters are all the same. Baby Jesus, his parents, the three wise men, the shepherds, and the animals. But how you clothe the people and what animals are there is what changes. Meaning from the materials used, you know, the customary outfits, the animals present, and yes, even the type of building utilized as a manger. In Europe, you may have deers, but in Africa, they are ox, oxen. In Russia, the trees are pine, and in Asia, the trees are palm trees. Some characters are either made from wood, or clay, or aluminum, metal, corn husks, porcelain. It goes on and on. In Canada, the roof is slanted, so the snow falls off, and in the Philippines... The manger is the equivalent of about eight feet off the ground, on stilts, uh, to outlast a tidal surge or a monsoon flood. So many different ways to tell the same story. And we are only at the beginning of the story of Jesus' life. We then have only a few glimpses of Jesus from that point in the manger story. It is not really until he reaches 30 years of age when he starts his ministry. Then we follow him as he questions, teaches, feeds, exercises demons, tames the weather, heals, prophesies, and even raises from the dead. All of which, especially his 40-day trial of complete fasting, terrible temptation, and eventual victory over Satan, leads us to the sacrifice Jesus allowed himself to be. What I am thinking through right now is why there is nowhere near the broad range of art about the crucifixion as there is for the manger. I am now sure why, but it may have to do with the dark and bloody nature of that night, that day and night. And while that may be why the range of artistic expression is a little less diverse, the Calvary story has much more twists and turns. It reminds me of a Game of Thrones type story with the courtside intrigue of Caiaphas lobbying Herod and Pilate to have them eliminate the Pharisees' competition by killing Jesus. The deep symbology at the Last Supper, the mysticism of the aberrations of Moses and Elijah, the passion of Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, so intense his sweat was mixed with blood. Then there is the kiss of his Betrayer juxtaposed with the healing of the servant's ear. Then there is a way, the way that Jesus chose to respond in the two trials and the lessons we can learn from the rage of the mob. 
Then the story goes to an even darker place, to a series of torture, beatings, ridicule. Then the second of the three stories in his life really kicks in when we find our story at Golgotha. So many additional stories and sub-stories. So many things happening at the foot of the cross. Yes, the talk about amongst the indifferent Roman guards that had just tortured Jesus in so many ways. Or what the two thieves talked to Jesus and themselves about. And the discussion between the two Marys and his most intimate disciple, John. What is the broader meaning when Jesus asked John to care for Mary and for Mary to care for John? What can we learn from the deeper meaning when Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, or cried, I thirst, or uttered, I commit my life into your hands. And especially when he finally says, it is finished. And finally, the symbolism or of wrapping Jesus and placing him into a freshly carved cave designed to be a tomb. Which leads me to the third of these three main stories of Jesus, which coincidentally is broken up into its own thirds. The first is what happened in Hades. What, you say? How could the most perfect man ever to have lived have to go to hell? It is my contention that it is because he could, meaning only he could. The Bible tells us that Jesus went down and took back the keys of death, hell, and the grave. As if Jesus didn't have enough miraculous power, he now had all the power over our planet and its inhabitants, power lost in the Garden of Eden. This is one of the reasons Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. We humans, through the first Adam, lost the connection to God and his holy presence. And through the second Adam, the right relationship with God was restored. I often wonder what happened down there when Jesus, the Son of God, went into the realm of Satan and all the demons to demand rightful return of authority over the death, the grave, and of the hell itself. We will never know this side of glory. The second part of the third story is the actual remarkable resurrection when Jesus came back to life on the third day, as some prophets and he himself prophesied about. From scientists who have studied the Shroud of Turin, which for those of you who may not know, is purported to be the burial cloth used to wrap the body of Jesus. It is a long cloth. If laid out, it is more than twice as long as a body. They laid the back of the body on the cloth and they would fold it around and over his head and across the front of his body. The shroud, as they call the burial cloth, is purported to be the one that surrounded Jesus. And it has an image of a body. It is the only shroud found that has an image that can best be described as a negative. For those of you who are not familiar with traditional photography, <laughs> meaning before digital, cameras use film to capture an image. 
However, when it does, it imprints the image on the film, which is called a negative, which at this stage is a reverse of what was captured, meaning that there, where there were whites, there are blacks. Where there are blacks, there are whites on the negative. And of course, many shadations for areas that fall within zones of darker or lighter. To create a print, one would go into a dark room, place a part particular negative in what is called an enlarger, and shoot light through the negative on a specially sensitive paper, making a positive, or what is considered by most as the print, or finished photographic print, or simply as a photo. When you consider this process, and we return to the shroud, again, the only one of its kind, this type of an image of a man, an image on both sides in the form of a negative, this means two things, and I will share them in reverse order of magnitude and importance. One is that when scientists have made a positive of the negative image of the shroud, we have an actual photograph of Jesus Christ. It is eerily cool, very cool. You can look it up online using a search engine like startpage.com and then click on images to see images of the negative and the positive prints of what Jesus looked like. Wow, what Jesus Christ looked like. And if there's much doubt about who this man was, then look closely. There are spots of blood around the crown of his head where the thorns would have dug in. You'll see blood spots on his wrists and on his ankles. What is amazing is that the wounds are not on his hands, like many artists depicted him over the millennia, but just above the wrist, in between the two bones of the lower arm. Scientists have proven that you can't crucify someone by nailing the stake into their hands as the weight of the body would rip through the soft webbing of the skin between the fingers. So the blood stains for the crucifixion on the hand area is scientifically accurate. Then there is what can clearly be seen as the wound from the sword that pierced his side. Simply amazing. But what is more amazing, what would or could have caused a negative to be imprinted on the burial cloth. Scientists who have studied this have concluded that it had to have been a part of the same process of shooting a negative in a camera. Meaning when I shoot an image, I release the shutter, which opens the aperture and light streams in and hits the film and imprinting an image of what I composed onto it and into onto and into a negative. What this means, and which is the only explanation possible within physics, is that there was an immense amount of energy and maybe not just the abundance of visible light, but possibly an intense mix of light, which is both particle and a wave a broader spectrum of, of, of electromagnetic light frequencies, meaning a wide spectrum of energy emitted from the inside outward and onto the cloth at that moment when Jesus was actually resurrected. It's just incredible. This enough validates the title of Jerry Jenkins' essay, that Jesus is more than a story. However... I am barely on the second third of the third part of the story of Jesus. The third third is that the 40 days that Jesus walked the earth after his resurrection. 
And he was not in aberration, as Jesus was actually in physical form. We know this when Jesus asked the doubting Thomas to touch him and feel his wounds. And so he knows, and so we know his, well, Thomas knew, and we now know that his actual body was alive. And then later he interfaced with many people throughout that region. And yet he was more than just resurrected in physical form. Jesus in this new phase state was more than just the body. We get glimpses, glimpses of it a few times where he seemed to be able to change his appearance, like on the road to Emmaus, walking with the two disciples. He seemed to have another appearance. Well, he seemed to have another, like, what his appearance changed right towards the end of his conversation when he revealed his form. Or in John 21, 4, when the disciples were fishing and they headed to the shore, they did not recognize Jesus until he revealed himself. Then he ate fish and bread with them, another validation that Jesus was not simply an aberration. And yet he seemed to have supernatural powers. Like in John 20, 19, when, simply, when Jesus simply appeared while the disciples were hiding in a locked room. Or in, when in Luke twenty four thirty six they were talking in a group and Jesus simply appeared among them, causing some of them to fear, thinking they had seen a ghost. Clearly, his corporal body had an ultra-dimensional property to it. Now, instead of overly focusing on how that could be possible, I noticed a new theme to the interaction with the disciples and the post-resurrection Jesus. And this is the new and continual greeting and blessing of Jesus when he would say, Peace be with you. This is very telling to me in relation to the time the disciples were locked up in a room together. Most of them had abandoned hope with the death of Jesus and were anxious that the Jewish leaders would come for them next. But Jesus imparts peace to their troubled hearts. And to me, this is Jesus' personal take on the gospel. When Jesus is with you and you are in him, like in that fear-filled locked room, then there is actually nothing to fear. You can live your life in perfect peace in any situation. Which leads us to the super important Great Commissioning and Ultranatural Ascension. Jesus tells Peter that he, the one with seemingly the most faults, will be the rock with which he will build his church on, and in several ways to tend to the flock of Jesus. He blessed the others, admonishing them to share the gospel with every creature. Now, I noticed. When I read stories of the early church fathers, St. Francis actually took that literally. <laughs> but for me, I take this to mean that I'm to share the good news of the gospel with everyone, every chance, and in every way I can. Some I know are doctors or dentists, like the ones my mom served with on the Anastasius Mercy Ship. They use their medical training and skill to share the gospel. Phil Driscoll uses a trumpet. Jerry Jenkins uses storytelling ability. A widower uses her gift of interceding to intercede for people. The little drummer boy used his drum. My mom used her intention to share the gospel through her joy. And I pray that God will bless my daily intention to meet the Great Commission through my photography and peripherally through the written and spoken word. Now, who are you and what gifts were you born with or developed? The Bible says you were fearfully and wonderfully made. And that means you have a destiny and a purpose, and you have something you can use to share the gospel 
with those in your ever-changing circle of influence. But let's get to the end of the third part of the third part of the story of Jesus, his miraculous ascension in his physical form up and into another dimension. Unless I'm mistaken, something like this has never happened except for Enoch and Elijah. But I should not be surprised at the miraculous ascension because God's ways are so much higher than my little brain can understand. Especially when I realize that these three main stories of the story of Jesus is not the full story of Jesus. Oh no, not even close. You see, Jesus in a different form was around before his birth, way before his birth in Bethlehem. Philippians 2.6 makes it clear that as the Son of God, he existed from eternity past. Jesus said to God in John 17.24 that God the Father loved him before the foundation of the world and was receiving the worship of the heavenly host as called in Isaiah 6.1 and John 12.37. Actually, it is in John that infers that Jesus is God the Son as the creator of all things when he referred to him as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Paul, the writer of most of the New Testament, confirms this perception in Colossians 1.15, John 1.10, and 1 Corinthians 8.6. And we even have possible manifestations of Jesus before his birth, meaning there are many biblical scholars that feel that Melchizedek, the king of Salem, later known as Jerusalem, was Jesus or a forerunner or archetype of Jesus. And it seems non-consequential that Melchizedek had such an impact on the father of the Hebrews and both the Jewish and the Christian religion, that being Abraham. And even if you discount all that, it is undeniable that all foretelling of the arrival of Jesus by so many Old Testament writers, there are no less than 55 prophecies about Jesus and his role of providing salvation to all of humanity before Jesus was born. So far we have three main stories of Jesus' story, and the Bible's claim that Jesus was with Father God since before creation. And yet I am not done validating Jerry Jenkins' contention that Jesus is more than a story. And that is because of what the Bible tells us about Jesus after his ascension and him being seated at the right hand of God. The Bible tells us that he will come back to establish a heavenly kingdom on earth and will do this through an event known as the rapture, an event where the dead in Christ will rise from the dead and meet Jesus in the air to remain with him forever. Now, there are varying schools of thoughts as to when it actually starts, but some say that the rapture will initiate a great tribulation, a seven-year period meant for, uh, to prepare Israel for her Messiah, meaning at the end of the tribulation, Jesus will return with the host of heaven and the church to establish a messianic reign on earth, lasting 1,000 years. Not before the kings of the world come to fight Jesus in the valley of Megiddo, in an apocalyptic battle known as Armageddon. The army of Jesus wins, and his kingdom will be marked by material and spiritual blessings. So what do you say, brothers and sisters? I've just shared on the three main stories of Jesus' life, his pre-story, his post-story. Do you agree with me that Jesus is more than a story? If so, great. Continue or start living your life in the reality of who Jesus really is 
And as he said to his disciples, go in peace. If your answer is no, then I suggest you consider John 1.12, John 11.25, John 20.30-31, and especially John 5.24. Whoever hears my word believes him who sent me and has eternal life. If you have been seeking the truth, and if these episodes help you see the broader reality of Jesus, my admonition is to repent and believe in the gospel. And if you have chosen to believe, then close your eyes, picture Jesus sitting in front of you, tell Jesus you believe in him and want to be saved from your life of sin and hurt to a life of forgiveness, healing, and peace. Ask Jesus to come into the locked room of your heart today. Then seek out a mature Christian or a local church to have someone walk alongside and nurture you in your new life in Christ today. And with that, go in grace and may God keep you in his perfect peace. Thanks for listening to What the Cross Means to Me, devotional program heard every week on KKXX Life Radio. If you'd like to view the image discussed, the departure, Along with cross-parations and other verse-parations, then check out Magi Cross on Instagram. And if your church, youth group, or school would like to learn more of how to fundraise through Magi Cross products, or read further meditative musings on the cross through my Magi blog, then log on to magicross.com. That is M-A-J-I-C-R-O-S-S dot com.